but it was also I'll just ignore that being that was shit um so kinder scout was about my second hike in the hang on I'll start again ignore that again sorry I fucked up Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. doing okay nothing to report the two people i live with here in sheffield have both have negative covid tests done as a precaution due to recent contact with an infected person so that's one good thing england's currently in another nebulous lockdown although given how crowded aldi hillsborough was on saturday i'm not sure exactly what benefits it's having i'm not the best person to talk about covid and the lockdown to be honest as i've done almost nothing sociable since the first one in march about the only thing i'm not doing now that i would be doing in a normal world is going to the pub but a couple of beer shops in Sheffield are sorting me out on that score anyway. It is, however, doing wonders for my finances. I know I haven't spoken about this much because it all happened while I was having both mental health issues and then a subsequent laptop breakdown, but I do now have a job. It's a proper, normal, full-time, office-based job. Or at least it would be office-based if we weren't in lockdown. While I'm obviously not going into specific detail, my job is data-oriented, obviously, and I'm working for the civil service. There's a number of points around this, but two of them are. My registered office is based in Wales, some five hours away by public transport, and the feeling is when life returns to stability, they might expect me to work one or two days a week from the office, which I'm obviously not going to do from here. So I'll have to see how that plays out. The other is, one of the regulations in my workplace is because I'm handling sensitive data, and to the extent they may need to try and give me some more security clearance, a sort of high level of security clearance, the idea of which causes me endless amusement, I'm not allowed to take my work laptops out of the country. So, no, I'm not going to be able to flee to a small island in Kiribati and work from there. With regards to travel, actually, I've started to look at group tours. I know, right? I was shocked myself. But there's a logic to it. See, ever since the start of the year, um, I mean before lockdown, I've been rationalising the places of that I want to go to, the places I'm interested in visiting, trying to determine which are places I'm genuinely interested in going to and would get something out of visiting, and which I'd be merely going there because they sounded good. Bear in mind that I go to places for particular reasons and what I do when I get there. I've realised that many of the places I do genuinely want to see are ones where travelling solo and independently may prove to be an issue for reasons of admin, cost, language or safety which is often a form of admin and cost in a way. It's a lot cheaper and easier to have other people arrange things like bodyguards, for instance, if there's a group of you. That I physically wrote that sentence suggests that I'm not going to be on the first post-lockdown flight to Marbella. Places I'm looking at for the next couple of years include Dagestan and South Ossetia, the Yenisei River and outwards towards Magadan, all in Russia, uh, Chad, remote Greenland and Iraqi Iraq. I think it's still just a little bit too early to go to Syria yet. 
I noticed that one tour company was offering tours to Afghanistan, and that's Herat, Kabul and Balkh, with the message, for security reasons, we don't advertise the dates of this tour or the specific itinerary. Hmm. One of the problems, though, is that often these tours are ridiculously expensive, even if they do take you to places that, as a solo traveller, would be almost impossible. One, for instance, goes around the Central African Republic, and not just to the Zanga Zanga Special Reserve, then into Cameroon for a bit, which would be a fantastically unusual trip to a country rarely visited, except that it costs about €6,000, excluding flights. I mean, the Central African Republic is a bit of a lawless war zone, so going in a group on an organised trip is probably wiser, but still a little bit costly, bearing in mind that if you were doing it on your own, it shouldn't go anywhere near that much. But again, safety. Before then, however, a friend of mine in France wants to explore Ireland with me in June. Otherwise, all of my trips will be uh, UK ones, I suspect, which is fine, as there's a lot here to explore. One such place is the nearby Peak District, and one of the most popular places therein is known as Kinder Scout. Kinder Scout is in the central part of the Peak District, which is one of the UK's national parks, covering an area about twice the size of Hong Kong. Kinder Scout itself is on the northern side of the centre of it, where the land goes from rolling green fields to more pronounced hills and moorlands. North of here, the land reaches the Pennines and it gets very bleak. Indeed, the next hill to the north is called Bleaklow Hill, one of the most challenging areas of the Peak District to hike through, and the site of a plane crash of an American bomber in 1948, which you can still see the remains of. Other notable features around Kinderscout area, and maybe one day I'll do a podcast episode on the Peak District as a whole, include the picturesque village of Castleton, home to the small ruined Peveril Castle, hence the name, and a series of mines and caves which you can explore. One of these is the Blue John Cavern, famous for a mineral called well, Blue John, a form of banded fluorite used for jewellery and table ornaments. I went here when I was about, well, I was being, I was able to sit on my uncle's shoulders, that's how young I was, and because it was so narrow and so dark down there, I got a bit scared and ran out. Because in those days, I was a scaredy cat. Nothing changes, really. Also nearby is the hill called Mam Tor. It's one of the most famous hills in central England and northern England, possibly England as a whole, and one which, perhaps surprisingly, I've never walked up. The name is believed to mean Mother Hill, Tor being a common element in place names indicating a hill, whilst the Celtic word Mam still being used today to mean Mother in both modern Welsh and dialectal English, and presumably related by Valshift to the more common Mum. The same route is seen in the original name of the nearby city of Manchester, Mamukio, and also in the Mumbles, a hilly area in Wales near Swansea. By mother, incidentally, the generally accepted feeling is that these hills referenced are shaped like breasts. It's not something I've paid attention to, because firstly I'm not that interested in breasts, uh, and secondly I'm not spatially aware enough to make that connection. They just look like hills to me. Weirdly, despite being a largely Celtic area, the French town of Brest doesn't refer directly to a hill that looks like a breast. In fact, the name of that town comes from another Celtic word, brig, that means, uh, well, hill, would you believe? Another possible explanation of the Mother Hill epithet for Mamtor specifically is that it's a relatively unstable and is the site of frequent landslides. These sometimes create new child peaks. It's a weird etymology, to be fair. These landslides occasionally cause problems. Uh, the best physical evidence of this is on the old road that used to pass over it. This was the A625 and one of the main roads between Manchester and Sheffield. However, Continued landslides over the course of the 20th century caused it to be closed and rebuilt several times. 
A particularly bad one in 1977 made the authorities convert it to single track, but two years later they decided to give up and abandon it completely. It's still possible to walk along it, and it's quite eerie in parts. It shows definitely the power of nature, even in a relatively benign country like the UK. There's bits of it that have fallen off down the hill, and there's big holes in the way, and there's, you know, you try and imagine a car going up it, and it, you just, it, you, they just can't, basically. Uh, a similar problem has occurred a few miles further south in the vicinity of Eam, where the road northeast out the village has been cut off for several years due to part of it going missing down a hill as well after a rainstorm, and as far as I know, it's not been rebuilt. Our road management systems would be completely thrown to pot if we had volcanoes or decent earthquakes. Kinder Scout itself is only a couple of miles from Mam Tor. It's basically the next hill along, just to the north of Edale. I say hill, but that's not quite true. If Mam Tor is Mount Everest, Kinder Scout is the Tibetan Plateau. I realise that's a very strange metaphor. Though obviously it's less vast and impressive. And with fewer plurair flags. It's about five to six hundred metres in elevation, and while the trek up there is quite steep and energetic, once you're there it's a large area of casual paths, rock formations and good views, allegedly as far as North Wales. Although this is England and my experience of high points in England is generally one of low cloud visibility measured in metres rather than miles. The worst I had on this score was Winter Hill up in Lancashire, although interestingly part of the same topographic layout as Kinder Scout, as is Pendle Hill even further north where I climbed to the top next to a 300 metre TV transmitter and could just about see the bottom three metres of it. In fact, the views are from it are probably what prompts its name. It's believed to be of Celtic origin, of course, and it means place that juts out and offers wide views. I'm in a wide open space, I'm standing, I'm all alone and staring into space, or so they say. Becky, from Becky the Traveller, agrees, although possibly not with my singing. On a clear day from Kinder Scout, you can have really beautiful views from the summit, um, kind of see for miles, obviously being one of the, the well, obviously being the highest point in the area. Um, but on bad weather days, you can be blown all over the place. It can be really, really windy at the top and pretty cold. And I'm pretty sure Ian is going to tell you more about windy days on Kinder Scout. Might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure he will. <laughs> I do mention a bit of wind later on, but while I'm thinking about it, just before the hike across Great Britain last year, me and Becky did do a couple of practice hikes, one of which was over Kinder Scout, with our friend and videographer Joe, in March, during a named storm, Storm Gareth, when it was snowing. One of us thought this was a really fun and great idea and all jollily nice. Two of us did not agree. You can probably guess which who thought what. I still don't know how I survived the descent down Grindsbrook Clough, but we'll talk about that later. Firstly, I need to give a little overview of some background and history to Kinder Scout itself. It's most notable in British history for the mass trespass event of 1932, without which this podcast episode may not have been possible. Although, as with many incidents and events, the truth is a luxury and everyone has their own views on it. It's often touted as a mass protest that pitted the public against the landowners, one of those David versus Goliath battles that's been very common throughout history. The basic framework is this. Traditionally, landowners had been very protective of the land they own, even where the land in question was a vague moorland used for no real purpose other than, for instance, grouse shooting. Ramblers, people who liked walking over the countryside for no purpose other than for its own enjoyment, were technically not permitted, but were generally tolerated, as long as you were of the right sort, of course. It probably shouldn't take much imagination to realise what sort was meant in this case. 
In addition, Rambler Associations did liaise with local landowners, and in later times water boards, this whole area of the Peak District is noted for its reservoirs, to create footpaths. One over the northern stretches of Kinder Scout to Snake Pass was opened in 1897, for instance. So, some limited access was available, and in truth restrictions were often ignored anyway by many ramblers, because that's just what humans do. But while rambler associations were created even amongst the working classes, taking advantage of new railway lines and cheap furs to go on organised trips, this was the age of the work holiday too, also seen in the rise of the British seaside resort at the same time. There was a feeling amongst many, especially in those working classes who couldn't afford to bribe landowners, or the costs associated with being arrested for trespass, that the whole concept of land ownership was unjust and the moors should be open to everyone. It may come as no surprise at all, then, to learn that the leading light of the Kinder Scout mass trespass movement was a young communist, Benny Rothman, from nearby Glossop. He led a small group of fellow comrades on a camp in nearby Bleaklow in Easter 1932, but they'd been forced off by a group of landowners and gamekeepers. His thought was, well, if there'd been 40 or 50 of us, they wouldn't have been able to do it. So he did. On the 24th of April 1932, he led a group of people from Hayfield to the west of Kinder Scout, up onto the plateau. It's unclear how many people followed him. The establishment downplayed the event with suggestions of only about 100, while Rothman claimed somewhere between six and 800. We'll ignore folksing at Ewan McCall for once, with an exaggerated for effect reporting of some 3,000. I'm not even sure you could fit that many on the footpath. Although the group were met with gamekeepers and, by accounts, some police, Rothman was correct in his belief and the group made it to the top of Kinder Scout. There were some violent clashes along both ways and several of the group were arrested, mainly for affray and riotous assembly, and later imprisoned on these counts for up to six months, but not, interestingly, for trespass, suggesting that trespassing laws themselves were unenforceable. The Ramblers' associations, for their part, distanced themselves from Rothman's acts, believing they were too radical and too forceful, but the British public did not. The style of protest, and the authorities' reaction to it, stiffened the resolve in the minds of the people, and protests were held in support of both the concept of the right to roam and Rothman's actions itself, including a march at nearby Winnett's Pass that attracted some 10,000 people. In the immediate post-war era, legislation was finally enacted that went some way to alleviating the concerns of people like Rothman. National parks were created. These were designated areas of the country managed by specific park authorities rather than local councils, and where development is restricted, though unlike in most countries, national parks in the UK aren't separate entities from the rest of the country, and often the only way you know you're in one is because there's a signpost by the road telling you. Approximately 400,000 people live inside the boundaries of a national park in the UK. I have no idea how many live in the boundaries of the national park in the USA, but I imagine it's probably in single figures. The first national park to be designated was the Peak District, in April 1951. The other thing that was created was the Pennine Way, the rugged 430km route that goes vaguely up the Pennine mountain range in northern England. A suggestion for a long-distance footpath up the centre of England had been independently mooted for a while. It had been mentioned as an idea by the leading rambler Tom Stevenson in 1935, although whether he was influenced or perturbed by the mass trespass is unclear, given he later went on to be charge of the Ramblers Association in the post-war environment, I would probably argue he was not fond of Rothman. Uh, the Pennine Way finally opened in 1965 as a through trail linking together a number of existing paths into a coherent signposted route. 
<laughs> Again, it's unclear how much the mass trespass affected the provision of the Pennine Way itself, although it's certainly believed the reason it starts in Edale and goes directly over Kinder Scout within the first hour and a half of hiking is to reinforce the memory of it. Many people felt it should have started some 40 kilometres to the south near Dovedale, as that's arguably where the Pennines themselves start. Other people, however, suggest the Pennines don't really begin until the Peak District itself ends, somewhere around Saddleworth Moor and just to the south of Hebden Bridge, some two and a half days up. However, it wasn't until as recently as 2000 that the policy of the kind envisaged by the mass trespass was enshrined in law in England and Wales, and even then it doesn't go as far as it does in other countries, notably Scotland, which has a specific right to own policy and much looser regulations on wild camping, which is technically illegal in the rest of the UK. Kinderscout itself is designated open country, which means while the landowner has the right to restrict access for certain events, public safety, simply conservation reasons, there are regulations in place guiding these closures. Otherwise, Kinderscout itself is free to roam. And, you know, if you did want to wild camp on it, while it would be remiss of me to advocate such a policy, there are certainly remote parts of it where you could certainly put up a tent without being noticed. And no one's going to really care anyway, as long as you leave no trace of having done so. Becky? did just that. So Kinder Scout was probably my second hike in the Peak District and the first was Mantor but it was the first place that I ever wild camped. Back in September 2015 um, my sister and I decided to try out wild camping and see what it was all about. I think it all went quite well. I remember it being pretty cold and I think a sheep made us jump. But apart from that, it was a thumbs up. My first wild camp experience, incidentally, was on Bleaklow, and I've ranted about that cold, weird experience many times before. But what's so special about Kinder Scout, and why have so many people wanted to explore it, given that it's a remote land mainly made of gritstone, peat and mud? Here's Jenny, who is a Peak District mum on Instagram, with her overview on what and why she likes it up there. Kinder's such an incredible place for so many different reasons. Um, just the sheer expanse of it, the size of it. I mean, it's the highest place in the Peak District, which in itself makes it an amazing place. But just the variety of the landscape, the fact that you could be up there on the moors, um, so rugged, and you just feel like you're in the absolute middle of nowhere, when realistically you're only a few miles from Edale or Hayfield. But um, you can be in other areas where it is busier and there are more people about, um, and it's obviously a more popular place. So there's obviously there's different areas to discover depending on what you want. There's so much you can get out from a walk up there. Uh, there's obviously places like you've got Kinder Downfall, which if you're lucky enough to see the wind when it's blowing it up and you've got the waterfall going backwards up and over, it's an incredible sight. Um, and when it's cold and wintry and icy and it's all frozen up, it's such an incredible sight. It's amazing. Um, and like something just that you wouldn't imagine seeing in this country at all um, obviously you've got all your different areas as well of you've got the trig points up there you've got places like um Grindsbrook clough and crowd and clough which are just great scrambles and walks in themselves and um, so whatever you're wanting from a day out up there you've got it it's there and um, combined with nice little pubs in edale um when you've finished as well so um for me it's it holds a lot of great memories um from being back at uni and doing um research projects up there and go walking up there just to improve our navigation and just to basically explore and have fun and um, to now just going for walks up there with friends and even taking my little girl up there in a backpack when she was a little bit younger and um, so 
whatever your reason to go and explore it just go for it there's so many great places and it is somewhere that i need to explore more myself as jenny says there are a number of interesting sites on and around kinder scout one of the most notable of these is what's known as kinder downfall a long and rocky waterfall of some 30 meters in drop treacherous in winter when it all ices up scary after a rainstorm when the normal trickle becomes a raging torrent that the path crosses by a series of stepping stones on my last visit the problem was the wind making it hard to stand without being blown down it when rain and wind combine the spray can be seen for quite some distance and i guess must make the place seem quite eerie and sinister the waterfall is where the river kinder which rises on the plateau begins its descent to kinder reservoir to the west there's a lot of kinders here which i guess is no surprise Oh, come on, did you really think I'd do a whole pod on Kinder Scout without coming up with that pun at some point? I know, it was dreadful. Enough to get me banned from the USA, I suppose. Anyway, Kinder Downfall is on the north edge of Kinder Scout. Beyond this, the path, the Pennine Way in fact, heads downwards towards Mill Hill and then along a very boring flat bit of barefoot-friendly concrete slabs for a couple of miles, punctuated only by the frightening eerie sound of flustered grouse flying away. I've said before that I don't know much about birds, but I can tell you the sound of a grouse is like nothing on earth. It's designed for horror movie soundtracks. Before hitting Snake Pass, the most direct route between Manchester and Sheffield, but despite its designation in the low numbers, it's the A57, it's not the signposted route. Partly, I guess, because of its tendency to close in winter because of snow, but mainly because it's one of the best driving roads in England. It's a road of two parts. The eastern half is a winding but fairly fast single carriageway road through the woodland of the Derwent Valley, gradually rising, while the western half is a spectacular but bleak, very winding road over the open moorland of the Peak District, where pretty much nothing grows and it feels like you're driving through the end of the world. Incidentally, it's not called Snake Pass because the road snakes around. Rather, it's because of the Snake Pass Inn, previously known as the Snake Inn, halfway along, which itself is named after William Cavendish, the Duke of Devonshire, a notable landowner in the area, whose family crest had a serpent on it, specifically the sixth Duke of Devonshire, as opposed to the previous five, and prior to that the three Earls of Devonshire, who were also called William Cavendish. These are not to be confused with the several William Cavendish Bentinks, the Dukes of Portland, also notable landowners in the area, who descended from the fourth Duke of Devonshire. Good God, it's like the Wars of the Roses all over again, but with even fewer names. Near Kinder Downfall is Mermaid's Pool, which, perhaps unsurprisingly, is a pool wherein you'll find a mermaid. Or a water nymph. The legendarium is quite vague on the subject. She's believed to grant the curse of immortality if you meet with her on Easter Saturday, which seems a remarkably Christian day for something that feels, well, quite pagan. It's quite a small, unassuming pool, and one imagines the tale sprung up from people lost in the moorlands and probably hallucinating. Along the southern edge of Kinder Scout Plateau, there is another path that weaves over the slightly undulating and rocky ground, and provides huge vistas across to Mam Tor and the nearby Hope Valley. This is the valley that runs eastwards from Castleton towards Sheffield. Despite its name, the river here is the River No. The valley is named after the village of Hope, which appears to be an old English word for, um, valley. It also leads to the joke in Sheffield, why is Manchester such a depressing place? Because it's beyond hope. I mean, yeah... Anyway, the path passes several interesting rock formations, which look very out of place in the otherwise even moorland. One set of these rocks is called the wool pack, presumably because it looks like a series of sacks of wool piled on top of each other. I can't see it myself, it just looks like a pile of haphazardly stacked barge boulders, but then I don't have much of a vision for these things. And to be honest, this particular set looks like any of the other sets of rocks that are present at the edge of the Kinder Scout Plateau on both this side and the western side. People use them for Instagram poses, 
On my last visit up there, which was in September, I heard from a chap who said one influencer was posing half-naked on the rocks halfway to Kinder Downfall for about an hour. Due to that set of rocks' prominence, they're visible from quite a way away from several pub paths, so that it'd been hard to miss. At the bottom of Kinder Scout, in the Hope Valley, lies the small village of Edale. Although not the only access point for the plateau, it's by far the most used one. This is partly because it's easy to access, it's got a direct rail link to both Sheffield and Manchester, but also because it has a youth hostel, a couple of campsites and two pubs. One of these pubs is the Old Nag's Head, a 16th century stone building that's often described as quaint, and it's notable as being the designated endpoint of the aforementioned Pennine Way, the other end being just over the border in Scotland at Kirkyetham, at another pub called, oddly enough, The Border. You get a free half pint at the border pub if you hike the whole route. I've no idea if the same applies to the old nag's head if you're going south, but much fewer people do the route in that direction. Mainly because the sun would be in your eyes all the time if you did. Maybe one day I'll do an entire pod on the Pennine Way. It was certainly the main feature of the hike I did with Becky the Traveller last year across Great Britain, and it's certainly worth talking about more. For this pod, though, I'll mention two things about the Pennine Way. Firstly, its current route goes directly up the western side of Kinder Scout, climbing its way via a not entirely even but quite gradual stone staircase called Jacob's Ladder. It's wide but quite steep, with shallow and deep steps, and one of the reviews of it on TripAdvisor says, Wear suitable footwear. I can confirm this would be advisable. They're not flat or smooth, and indeed have the feel in some places of narrow slats. My trip around Kinder took me up Grindsbrook Clough, over the plateau to Kinder Downfall, then down the Pennine Way, mostly back to Edale Railway Station, entirely barefoot, and Jacob's Ladder was the only place I had issues with the underfoot texture. It wasn't the only place I had issues, but we'll come on to that in a short while. Here's Becky again, talking about her preferences on physically going to Kinder Scout. So for years, I had zero (laughs) map reading skills. Um, I used to go uh, to the Peak District with my brother and sister, and we always used to catch the train to Edale. And then we'd go up via Grindsbrook to the top, um, which was brilliant. And I loved it. And there was many different memories because the weather was always different. Um, You'd go from seeing absolutely nothing to seeing views for miles. So um, it was still pretty cool. And I used to love the scramble bit up Grindsbrook. Um, But I guess a few years on since trying to teach myself how to map read and um, and exploring a lot more on my own, um, I now have been experimenting with all the different routes up Kinder Scout. And there's probably about 20 plus different routes. So you've got the really popular ones like the Mass Trespass route from Hayfield. And you've got Jacob's Ladder, which goes from Edale via the Pennine Way National Trail. So I guess they're kind of the common ones that everyone knows about. Um, But then you've got quite a few quieter paths and more challenging routes that include kind of scrambles and um, fun bits that I like to do. So you've got like Redbrook and Blackton Brook where there's pretty much no official path, um, but there is a route up and you can kind of scramble your way to the top. And it's uh, quite adventurous if you like that kind of thing. Both me and Becky have now mentioned Grindsbrook Clough. This is... It's the route the Pennine Way used to take before it was rerouted up Jacob's Ladder. It's a brook, a small river that rises on the eastern side of Kinder Scout and descends pretty much to the old nag's head in Edale. I'm not going to call it a path. I refuse to call it a path. I don't care what Becky says. It's a waterfall. 
or I guess it would be if the Clough itself was anything more than a simple stream. Although it's a designated walkway on the map, it's a long, rough rock scramble that never seems to end. It is, however, in my experience, much easier going up it than down. Or maybe that's just me and my dyspraxia. The top of it is an excellent viewpoint again across the south of the Peak District and is where several paths meet, including one heading east towards Wynn Hill and the Lady Bower and Derwent Reservoirs, another very picturesque spot. It's lovely the way all these paths link up, so you could spend days wandering aimlessly around this part of the Peak District, each path bringing new vistas and experiences. Wandering aimlessly, however, is also what happens in the centre of Kinder Scout. There is an area, roughly triangular, bordered on one side by the Pennine Way from Jacob's Ladder to Kinder Downfall, another by the path past the Woolsacks from Jacob's Ladder to Grinsbrook Clough, and the third by an arbitrary line from Grinsbrook back to Kinder Downfall. I call this area the Kinder Triangle. There are paths marked on the map that traverse this, and they look simple, really simple, fairly straight lines. I have not yet met anyone who has successfully walked them. Regardless of your maps, your GPS, your compass, as soon as you step away from either the path to the Woolpack or the path along the River Kinder, you are in a wilderness where left is right, east is south, the well-trodden trails on the ground bear no resemblance to the routes drawn on the map, and then end without any warning, where you walk along what you think is a path, then look at your GPS and see the route you want is some 200 metres to the east and you've no idea how. It's no use following the people in front as they're on the wrong trail true, and woe betide the people behind you following you assuming you know where you're going. Getting back onto the right trail involves making your way through identical areas of green, thorny, shrubland and moss, descending slippery grassy banks and stepping through streams of mud which you've no idea how deep they are, but you just have to wade through them and hope. Then ahead of you, you see a hiker with a map and compass and you think, oh, I'm on the right path after all, finally, until they come up to you and ask, do you know where the path is? Which way is Grinesbrook Clough? And all you can do is give a vague wave of the hand and go, well, that's where I started and it's somewhere over there. Just keep going till the land runs out and turn left. That's the best I can do. You reach a small stream that you know feeds into the River Kinder and you decide to follow it, but the sides become steeper and sheerer while the water gets deeper and deeper. Will you ever see Edale again? Someone else who agrees with me on this point is Nat from Nat's Packet Travel. Kinder Scout's definitely one of my favourite walks in the UK. I'm actually pretty local to it, about an hour away in car, so... I've done it a few times and it's definitely one I'll want to do again at some point. The reason it's one of my favourites is because it's different every time. You will get lost. End of. No matter how prepared you are, up at the top of the peak there are moors and no one manages to get through there perfectly. No matter how prepared you are, you can go in a group with maps, compass, GPS, everything. And the only way you will get through on the proper path is if the path had guide ropes you just got no chance, especially once the mist descends. Last time I did it, I had a nice clear day, so I managed to keep mostly to the path. I ended up a bit off the path at some points, but overall, I did quite well, I thought. But the first time I did it, it actually snowed the night before, so I had no chance of finding the path. So I thought, right, there's footprints. Well, the footprints. Thing was, the footprints stopped. I followed them for probably about 15 minutes, and they stopped. They didn't even turn around or anything. They, I don't know what happened to this person, just disappeared into thin air. I have no idea. But it's all part of the fun of Kinder Scout, really. There's just no way you can't get lost. If you might not get lost, then you must have some kind of superpower, if I'm honest, up there. But yeah, it's definitely good fun and one to try. I'm not aware of Kinder Scout being the scene of any mysterious events, UFO sightings or the like, 
but you can bet your life I wouldn't be at all surprised if there were other similar tales of footprints in the snow suddenly disappearing, or strange ethereal glow lights, or eerie noises that sound like they're from a ghastly unearthly creature that aren't grouse. I've only, fortunately, ever got lost up there in daylight. At night, with the only lights being the distant glare of Manchester to disorient you, I'd imagine it'd be quite scary. Although I was barefoot up there anyway, because, well, me... The frequent muddy brooks and cliffs I had to wade through to get back on track were a great excuse when I passed people later on, and they queried my lack of footwear. Hiking barefoot does have its advantages. I'm not going to recommend it to anyone. Indeed, last Sunday I appeared once again on BBC Radio Sheffield to talk about this very subject, and the presenter was left feeling that I hadn't convinced him to try it. But, for example, it felt much easier to do the rock scrambling up the Grindsbrook Clough waterfall barefoot, as I was much able to get purchase on the stones. Plus, with bare feet taking up a smaller area than booted feet, I could place my foot in better positions to climb. I actually really enjoy the feeling of rock scrambling when barefoot. I feel like some kind of mountain goat, and for some reason I have much more confidence than I would normally do with that level of height and possibility to slip and freefall. And indeed I always have. I remember climbing a hill in Cambodia, Cabal Spine, part of the wider Angkor Temple complex, many years ago barefoot, because the path was a similar rocky scrambling affair, and finding it was easier without sandals. Note this only applies going uphill. Regardless of footwear, I have real trouble going downhill, as I've mentioned before to some more amusing effect, due to a lack of balance and a fear of falling over. The only problem with my hiking barefoot is my dyspraxia. I mean, I have enough trouble with shopping trolleys. Many times, as I've said before, I've banged my right foot, and it is always my right foot, I don't know why, against the wheel of the trolley as I've been pushing it, which hurts like, well, I would say buggery as that's the stock phrase, but I've never been buggered, and I've no intention of doing so, so I can't prove or disprove it, but let's just say it hurt a lot. Now, I imagine some wild countryside with random scattered rocks at ankle height and paths that constantly veer in direction. I mean, Preston managed to get as far as Kinder Downfall, up Grindsbrook and over the Kinder Triangle, with only a couple of scrapes. Everything was going okay until, embarrassingly, the flat, wide, relatively smooth and simple farm road from the bottom of Jacob's Ladder to the farmer upper booth. Simple. Easy. Nothing could go wrong from here. Surely. Right. Well, and this goes to show just how little spatial awareness I have. I ended up walking too close to the verge on the right-hand side of the path and banged my little toe against it. I say banged. What actually seems to have happened is I caught it at precisely the wrong angle and bent it. I mean, it wasn't hanging off at a strange angle, but it easily could well have been. It was definitely noticeably in slightly the wrong place. You may be surprised, slightly concerned, to know that it didn't hurt much at all. It was just, well, awkward, looked weird. Made me psychologically go, hmm, have I broken it? Needless to say, I sent some questioning messages to a couple of friends who all replied, you complete doofus, you have broken at least three toes, because apparently one of the toes on my left foot also looked broken, following a collision with a stone in the Kinder Triangle. Go and see the doctor. When I got home, I patched it up a bit, taping my toes together, and making me walk awkwardly for a couple of days. Obviously, I didn't go to the doctor. For one thing, my GP is 25 miles away back in Kirkby and Ashfield. And yes, I could have gone to an NHS walk-in centre or direct to the Accident and Emergency Centre at the hospital, which is literally five minutes' walk from where I'm currently living. But I know they've got other people to see who are more in need than I am, especially in these times of pandemics and weird follow-up illnesses. You may be pleased to know, though, that my toe is still attached. It doesn't hurt, and it doesn't seem to have suffered any lasting damage. Though I've not gone on any subsequent hikes, I've done quite a few jogs or runs, What's the difference between a jog and a run, anyway? A barefoot around my local neighbourhood, with no problems. I have, however, become very careful about where I'm stepping at times, and my mind keeps imagining doing it again. It makes me squick quite a bit. I am aware there is an easy solution to this. 
But that's not who I am, damn it. I don't like shows. Well, that seems like an apt place to, well, also wrap this up. The next episode will be on British seaside resorts. I know this because I've partly written it already. Until then, don't be like me and don't break any toes. And if you're feeling off colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Sheffield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on the Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Thank you.